Welcome to The First 10 Years, a career podcast focused on learning from our past to propel us into the future. I'm your host, Daniel Doolin. I'm a communications professional, career and finance writer, and a career changer. But most importantly, I'm fascinated by work and how it fits into the bigger picture of life. I love to ask questions and want to know everything there is to know about how to have a successful and fulfilling career. On the first 10 years podcast, I'll reflect on my career journey thus far and invite other professionals and experts into the conversation so we can learn together how to turn the first 10 years of our career into a foundation for our ideal future. Hello, and welcome back to the first 10 years podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Doolin, and I'm so excited for today's conversation. Today, we're only two weeks out from Christmas. I hope you are taking time to celebrate with family and friends and hopefully getting some time to relax and rest in the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. I know it can be a bit of madness, but I hope you're taking time to enjoy it and and soak it all in and make some special memories. I have a great conversation today that I'm going to share with you. And then I have one more episode coming out before I'm taking a week off for Christmas myself so I can relax and recharge and get ready for 2024. So I'll be back on January 1st. But today I am so excited to be joined by Liz Young. Liz Young is the head of investment strategy at SoFi. And this was just a phenomenal conversation. Liz had so many great words of wisdom and advice from her early career and throughout her career. And we dig into all of that before we kind of shift the conversation to talk about investing and how to start investing and build wealth and get comfortable doing that, especially if we haven't done it before. So it's a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. But let me share a little bit more about Liz. As SoFi's head of investment strategy, Liz Young is responsible for providing economic and market insights to various audiences. Prior to joining SoFi, Liz was the director of market strategy at BNY Mellon Investment Management, where she formulated and delivered views on macroeconomic themes and their effects on capital markets. Earlier in her career, she was a portfolio analyst at Baird and a research analyst at BMO Global Asset Management. Liz holds a BBA in finance and marketing from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and an MBA from Marquette University. She is a CFA charter holder and member of the CFA Institute and CFA Society of New York. Liz is also the host of the monthly podcast, The Important Part, Investing with Liz. It takes listeners through today's top of mind themes in investing and breaks them down into digestible and actionable pieces. Each month, Liz delves into investing topics such as clean energy, inflation, market cycles, and crypto assets with special guests to get the important part, why it matters to investors as they work towards their wealth building goals. This show is the place to come for understanding how to approach your investments with the inside scoop from those who are armed with the knowledge to help you do so. I'll be sure to link that podcast in the show notes with Liz, but now it's time to get into our conversation. Enjoy. today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to dig in and learn more about your career and talk about your expertise. Um, I always like to start my conversations learning about your first 10 years, and I'd love for you to walk me through your experience in your early career, starting with what you wanted to be when you grew up. Uh, I mean, we could do probably the whole podcast on just this question. Um, So the first 10 years, sadly, was almost 10 years ago. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) But I remember it. Uh, I'm coming up on on 20 years in the working world pretty quickly here. But the first 10 years, I mean, I've always been in finance, technically. Um, The question about what I wanted to be when I grew up, that one had a a few more interesting twists and turns. Um, So I came out of college. I came out of undergrad with a double major in marketing and finance and a minor in Spanish. And Spanish, I always wow. just kind of carried through because it was fun and, and I, I found it interesting and I liked being around different students. Business students were kind of all the same sort of student and, and the Spanish students were just a different breed. Um, and I liked that variety. So I, I just kept going with Spanish and ended up with a minor in it. There was actually a brief period where I thought I wanted to be an interpreter and uh, travel around the world and and interpret Spanish in in different countries, and then I that kind of morphed into well maybe I want to go to a Spanish speaking country and teach English and that would be my career. Um, I very quickly figured out that maybe there wasn't a whole lot of income to be had <laughs> in doing in doing those things, and that there it was it was difficult for me to figure out what the forward looking plan would be. You know what what would be my growth opportunity in that if I did actually get to do that somewhere. So anyway, that just turned into a bucket list item of, I want to visit all the Spanish speaking countries in the world. And that's where I'm at today. So I I sort of abandoned that plan. The other, the other interesting path that I thought about, I didn't really do anything serious about it, but I thought about going to culinary school. uh, And I thought about that while I was in college, but more so after college, after I had gotten my undergrad and, and maybe before I went to grad school or, or right around that time uh, when I started grad school I, and got my MBA, I did think about culinary school, um, obviously abandoned that path as well, mostly because I realized that when you're a chef, you have to cook things late at night pretty often <laughs> and you don't you don't get to go home on Fridays. You, that's when you actually start working. Um, so I didn't love that idea. So stuck with business. Uh, I always liked math. I always liked numbers. And finance was a way to put together both numbers and business. And and that's sort of what I ended up with. Um, But came into the working world in a very different area of finance than I'm in now. And and that's maybe more of an interesting conversation. So I'll pause there. I don't want to make this the longest first answer in the history of the (laughs) podcast. But that's so multifaceted. That's so interesting that you hit on Spanish, culinary, marketing, and finance. A little bit of everything. You you could call it multifaceted. That's a positive spin. Um, or you could call it indecisive. Um, you know, I, I think personally, I have thought this for a while, that kids going into college today are expected to know what they want to do at 18. And and sometimes even in high school still, they're expected to know what they want to do. And, you know, I think everybody might have an idea of things that sound interesting, but in reality, you can't possibly be expected to commit to a career path at at 17 or 18 and, and never change your mind. And I think just giving kids the flexibility that it's okay to change your mind, it's okay to keep an open mind, uh, and that, you know, what you choose at, at 17 or 18, you're not in shackles to that for the rest of your life. But there is, a, I think there's more pressure today on college students and on uh, young professionals entering the workforce for the first time to know exactly where they're going and know exactly what their plan is. And, you know, one of the things that I talk to my own mentees about pretty often is 
don't make a five-year plan. Don't make a 10, definitely don't make a 10-year plan, but don't even make a five-year plan. And that usually sounds like counterintuitive advice, but I think it, it works against you a lot when you're younger because it, it creates tunnel vision and you get so committed to this five-year plan that you, you don't stop and look around and, and take into account maybe other opportunities that you didn't expect to come along and you say no to things that it might be beneficial to say yes to. So um, I, I definitely, throughout my career in finance, have said yes to a few things that I was you know thinking to myself, I, I'm nuts. I don't, where in the world, what am I doing? But it works out. And, and I think it's important to keep your mind open to those opportunities. You're speaking my language because that's exactly me. I went into college with an accounting degree because I took one accounting class and I, like you, like numbers. I was like, that seems logical. Um, but it almost feels like grasping at straws a little bit, but I actually wrote a piece for fast company about the myth of the five-year plan to exactly your point. I was like, everything changes. Like you can't make a plan because it's not accounting for all the different fluctuations and opportunities that may present themselves. So I am 100% in alignment with what you're saying. I was just going to say one of the, one of the easy ways that, that I try to tell my mentees to, to think about it is hold on to your dreams, let go of your plans. It's okay to have dreams and it's okay to, especially a pipe dream, one that seems completely unattainable and you can't even imagine how that might occur for you. Hold on to those, but let go of the path that you think you need to take in order to get to it. And if you don't, if you can't even envision a path yet, that's even better because then you'll be open to things that might happen along the way. I love that. I think that's great advice and almost a little unconventional, like you said, that you, what you typically hear. I think you have to keep that open mind. So walk me through the first 10 years of your career once you graduated. You said you um, went to grad school. Was that immediately after your undergrad? It was pretty soon after. Uh, yeah, because I double majored and minored, it took me an extra semester. So it was I was a four and a half year undergrad. Um, and then I started grad school about a year and a half after that. So it was pretty quickly afterwards. I, you know, I liked school. I, I just wasn't really done being a student yet. So I went back, but also always knew that I wanted to get a graduate degree. So it was sort of like, you know, why not just get it going? Uh, when I left college, so when I finished college, we certainly did not have the career resources that colleges and universities have today, but there were some career resources on campus and you know, we did interviewing and, and all of that stuff. And uh, I'll never forget, I had, I had three offers. Um, they were all with financial institutions and the the lowest offer that I had, and this is back in 2004, okay? Also, I was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The lowest offer I had was for $26,000 a year. The middle offer I had was for $30,000 a year. And the high offer, the most money I could have made, was $34,000 a year. And I took the middle wow. one. I didn't even take the high one. I took the middle one. And I ended up staying at that company at the time. It was called Marshall and Ilsley, um, M&I Trust Company. It ended up being bought by BMO. So by the time I left that company, it was BMO. But I stayed there in a trust operations department for about five years. And they had this very prescriptive plan of how you moved up and how you got promoted. And it was basically, here's a list of things that you have to complete in order to get promoted to the next level. And at the time, there was... There was safety and security in that framework for me because it made sense. I knew exactly what was expected of me. I knew exactly how to move up. And looking back, I think that made sense for my personality at the time. 
I had just started working. I didn't really understand what it was like to be a real adult. I didn't understand the working world. So it was good to have that sort of safety and, and expectations that were already set. So I stayed there for a while, ended up moving up pretty quickly and became uh, an assistant supervisor. And I was supervising three departments and I was about 26 years, 25 years old uh, and supervising three departments and and sort of looking around like, I don't think I want to do this forever. I'm 25 and I'm already a supervisor. There aren't, there's not that much more for me to move up toward in this particular part of the company. So I had started looking and uh, at that time, and now, this is funny. It's like, oh, my dream was to be in corporate finance. I don't, nobody dreams of that, right? <laughs> but at the time, I was sure. I was like, I want to be a CFO. And that seemed interesting to me, uh, which, you know, pr- people are probably laughing hearing that. Like, who who dreams of being a CFO? But I thought, you know, oh, math, you know, all that stuff. It was like there were equations. And as long as two plus two equaled four, I, I liked it. So I thought I wanted to be a CFO. I started to apply for some corporate finance type positions, didn't get them. I applied for a couple other positions. Um, I looked at hedge funds. I applied at a hedge fund. I applied at an investment banking firm. I didn't get any of these jobs and started to take it as a message like, okay, I'm doing something wrong, right? Something something about this isn't working. Um, And then this was the first turning point, the first big turning point in my career. This happened about five years in where I got a call from a woman in HR at the company I was working for. She knew that I was interested in doing something else and she was trying to help me find, you know, ideas. And she said, hey, there's a position open in investment management. The chief market strategist needs an analyst. He's interviewed a bunch of people. He doesn't want any of them. And she said, I'm I'm actually not sure what he's looking for anymore because he doesn't like any of these people. So why don't we give that a try? And she sent me the job description. She said, you know, are you interested? And I read it and I I thought, and this is a, a different podcast, but I think, you know, females and males have, have different uh, expectations for what they're capable of. And certainly at, at that age, I didn't think I was all that capable quite yet of investment management. I read the job description and I was like, whoa, 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 this is way, this is way over my head, way beyond what I should be doing. And there's, why would he even talk to me? Right. And she was like, let's just give it a try. Let's give it a try. So I went to the interview I was the last person he interviewed. I was the youngest person he interviewed. I was the least experienced, probably. And there were maybe two or three of us in the final running. Um, and, and again, I was the greenest of them by far. And he hired me. He gave me a chance. And, you know, I think I think he wanted somebody to mentor. Um, to this day, he claims that he saw something special in me that, you know, and, and that was why. Um, but he was... At the time, I mean, this guy was in his mid to late 60s when he hired me and, and in sort of the twilight of his career and wanted wanted somebody to mentor. And, and we got along so well. It was one of those jobs. I worked for him only for about two years. And I learned more in that two-year period than you know many other times throughout my career. And then that's what got me into investment management and started me towards this path. I'll also add he was the one at the company that was our media head. So he did all the broadcast and, and he did the presentations for clients. And I was the one building his presentations. I would make the PowerPoint slides and then he would go give the presentation and I would go and be like, gosh, someday I'm going to know enough 
to go give presentations like this or someday, this was my pipe dream, someday, maybe when I'm like 50, somebody will maybe want to put me on TV, right, to do, to talk about things that I'm an expert in. So that was, I started formulating my pipe dream and that's kind of where I think about it all beginning. Oh, that's amazing. So then walk me through there to where you are today because you do get to do some of those things that were in your pipe dream. I do. And it's, there are days, many days still that I'm like, wow, what, how did this, (laughs) how did this happen? Um, So I was, I was with him for about two years and he became a very good mentor of mine. I still talk to him to this day. And, you know, I, I was sort of clear on what I wanted to do, but not really. I just, I had the pipe dream and that was about it. He convinced me to register for the CFA program uh, I had always been a good student and I liked math. So I thought, whoa, how hard can this be? It's not that big of a deal. I stand corrected. It was very hard and it took me a very long time. Uh, but he's the one that got me into that program and on that path. And, uh, when I, when we were thinking about, you know, how much further do we have to go at this company and and the ownership had turned over, had been bought by BMO and things were changing. Um, and him and I talked about, you know, what would be the next step? What would be a logical next step for me? And it, it was, I trusted him implicitly. And I trusted that he had my best interest in mind. And he said, I think it would be a good idea for you to go to Baird, which was another investment shop in Milwaukee. There weren't many, so it, <laughs> there wasn't a lot to choose from. But I think it would be a good idea for you to go to Baird and work on their investment consulting, you know, due diligence team. And I didn't even, there weren't, I didn't know if there was a job open. He just was like, that, that team seems like a good place to go. (laughs) So like a little wind up doll, I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go find a job on, on this team that he told me about. And it's something about you, you put that energy out there and you start being intentional about it and it happens. And fast forward, I found a job on that team. And then I was, I worked at Baird uh, for about four years and I learned so much. I finished my CFA while I was there. Uh, I evaluated portfolio managers. I, I covered small cap portfolio managers and emerging market portfolio managers. I also spent some time covering bonds while I was there. Um, so I learned a ton about how the asset management industry worked. And I learned a ton about how to write about it because we had to write investment theses. So although looking back, that was probably not my favorite job, Um, it was me behind a desk most of the day, which is just not my personality. That's not my natural state of being. I'm a little too antsy and a little too chatty for that, but it was a job that was really, really instrumental in teaching me how to understand asset management and how to think through portfolio construction. And it really laid a foundation for me for the rest of my career in that job is when the next major turning point happened. And, you know, you you build relationships with the money managers that you're covering. And, and I had relationships with some of the relationship managers and I had made a contact uh, throughout that process. I was getting to the end of my, my tenure at Baird and and just sort of like, okay, this has been fun, but I don't want to be an analyst forever. I'm not really sure what else I want to do, but I want to do something else. And not to mention, I don't really want to live in Wisconsin anymore. Um, but how do I, I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to leave. I, you know, and, and there are some personal things that happened in there too. I had, I had literally, I say it as I rolled a grenade down the hallway of my life. I was married. I was living in a suburb of Milwaukee. 
I had kind of all the plans in place to stay there and do that forever. And I got to a point where I was like, this life does not feel like the right life for me. So left my marriage, quit my job at Baird, moved across the country, started a job at the Bank of New York Mellon because that one contact came to me and said, hey, I got a thing for you if you want it, but you got to move to Manhattan and you got to do it pretty soon. And I didn't think I was ready yet. I didn't think it was time for me to go yet. But sometimes opportunities come along and they're not going to come along again. So either you say yes now or forever lose your chance. Uh, so I said yes. And, and that was one of those times that I took a huge risk. I took a huge risk on myself. I took a huge risk on my career, my everything, my whole life. I had turned it upside down and said, you know what? I need to give myself a chance to go try something new. And if it doesn't work out, at least I know that I tried it. What would be worse for me is to wonder what if I would have tried it. How did you go about making that decision? That's such a huge upheaval, like you said, of, of a new job, new city, yeah. like everything. Yeah, I mean, I wanted I wanted it, I, and not that in particular thing, but I wanted a big change. Um, I wanted I wanted bigger horizons, I, you know, and, and I wanted the challenge, and I wanted to be able to chase my career and try my try myself at something that was much more uh, bigger, bigger pressure, bigger stage, or you know, and and I I really wanted to see what I was capable of. There's maybe a requirement that you have to be naive enough, right, to to do it. Had I thought about it much longer and, and overthought it and thought about all the things that could go wrong, and, and don't get me wrong, I did think about that stuff, but had I overanalyzed it, I might not have taken the leap. So there's, there, there is something to be said for a little bit of blind faith and, and just sort of, you know what, I'm here we go. Ready or not, this is just how it's going to go. And um, I also remember a conversation I had with my mom. I'm very close with my mom. And she was the breadwinner in our house. And, and that's a whole other personal story. She was a single mom until I was nine. And, and just so I was raised by a force of a woman and, and one who raised me and my sister to stand on our own two feet and, and be able to take those risks and, you know, understand that there are risks out there, but you also, you have to bet on yourself. So I had a conversation with my mom. I told her about the opportunity and I said, it's too soon. I'm not ready yet. I, you know, I'm still doing level three of the CFA. I, I just went through this divorce. I just got my new apartment. Like it's, there's so much going on. My life just felt so unstable. And she said, oh no, you're going. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, no, no, you're, yeah, you're no, you are saying yes to that. And you are going because you have wanted something like this. This is the chance. You don't get to wait for the perfect time you were going. And then later, you know, once it had gotten more concrete and I was moving and this all happened so quickly too. Once I was moving, she and I had another conversation and she said, you can't come back for two years. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, you got to give it a good shot. You cannot come back for two years. Wisconsin will always be here, but you're not allowed to come back for two years. That's amazing. <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. So it, it really was one of those, okay, ready or not, here we go. Uh, and I, I really feel like I started over. I was 32 years old. I started over at 32. So that was when I was 10 years in. I was 10 years into my working when I feel like I started over. I moved across the country and I was like, let's see what happens. 
Wow. And it obviously has worked out for you. And that's amazing that you have your mom being that cheerleader for you and that that person to almost hold you accountable and make that push. Sometimes we need that that outside person to be that voice for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I am tremendously lucky to have her. And I, I tell my mentees all the time too, collect mentors a, along your career because you need them. And they're the ones that will give you those pushes and they'll see things that you're not seeing because you're in it too close. Uh, or they'll believe in you in ways that that you don't believe in yourself, right? Or they'll have ideas. So it's important to have those little guides along the way. And it's also interesting the the morph that happens as you gain more experience and as you get to know yourself as a professional and your own skill set even more that you know, I used to rely on my mentors and my mother tremendously. It was almost like, you tell me what decision I should be making. And I took a lot of their advice very, very seriously. I still do take their advice very seriously. But as as I learned about my own strengths and about what really lights me on fire and, and what I know works for me and what doesn't work for me, I take their advice as inputs, but I have much more of an ability now to make the decision on my own and, and feel confident in that decision, even if it goes against what my mentors tell me, right? And and I, I have a handful. This happened just recently. In the, well, in the last year or so, there was a decision I needed to make, and I asked them all, right? I gave them all a vote, and I came out completely split 50-50. And I was like, well, that was useless. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so I still don't know what to do. And, and they all made good points. So it was... It turned out even when I asked every every trusted confidant I had, I I ended up having to make the choice on my own no matter what. So tell us a little bit more about what you do today in your current role. Once I first moved to New York, um, I spent about six or so years at the Bank of New York Mellon doing investment strategy work, and that changed a, a bit over the course of that period. Um, obviously, you know, moving up, getting different audiences, talking to different types of clients. And, and so it did change. And I started doing media while I was there. So that was already in motion uh, and, and something I was getting used to warming up to um, and becoming a little bit more of a regular guest on certain programs. And I was still on a team, however. So I reported to the chief economist there and I was on a team of of strategists and you know, that's a, how a lot of the big financial institutions work, and that's how it's laid out. Uh, SoFi came along in 2021 and basically offered me the opportunity to build my own team and build my own investment strategy function. And as terrifying as that was, it was also one of those opportunities that, you know, I may not get this call again. And and if I if I get it again, it may not be for a very long time. So I should take it, even though I'm afraid of it. <laughs> and I'm going to have to go and, and do this all by myself. It was it was just me at first having to build all of the investment strategy content and start it from the ground up with no framework um, and, and really just start giving it a shot. And, and there was some trial and error in that. Um, and then I hired an analyst about three or four months in, and he was incredible. He's been an incredible help. So, um, but it's still just the two of us. It's it's just the two of us this whole time. And what I mean on a daily basis, basically the mission of our team that I laid out when I started it was reach, teach, empower. So priority number one is we have to reach as many people as we can because we're representing the brand and we're representing the investment function 
for that brand for anybody who wants to be on our invest platform or who's learning about investing. And we have a lot of younger investors as customers. So it's important that we can reach them and connect with them. That's That was priority number one. Also knowing that younger investors want to get information much differently than people who are in their 60s or 70s. So being on the right platforms and then teach That was the part about, okay, we've got, this was the era of meme stocks, right? So we've got a lot of investors out there who are so interested in DIY investing, which I think is absolutely amazing. I love that. I love that people are so much more involved, but also a lot of investors out there doing DIY investing who have absolutely no exposure to investing and, and don't really know where to get the education, don't really know who to ask and may even be afraid to ask in certain places, or they're getting the information from unreliable places, right? So that teach component was, all right, what kind of content do we need to put out that's going to help educate people, help empower them, which is the next piece, but help empower them to really take control and feel confident in their investing life. And then the empower part is is really just to to build a lot of people up and say, you know what, just start moving. That's the biggest thing is just start moving. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to regret certain investments. That's kind of the point, especially when you're younger, when you're newer at this. So um, on a daily basis now, I've been at SoFi for about two and a half years. On a daily basis now, obviously we're doing research. There's, there's research is just a huge component of, of what this job always will be. Um, but then there's content creation, there's communication. So there's still making sure that I'm connecting with all of those audiences on a bunch of different platforms. Um, there's keeping up a regular cadence of that content and communication. So we have daily content that goes out weekly, monthly, quarterly, semi-annual outlooks, annual outlooks, and that expectation from the different audiences of, of getting material from us that's going to help them in their journey. That's amazing. I personally am a huge fan of SoFi. I will say I've I've used them to refinance my student loans, to open a high yield savings account. I just am a huge trailer of them. So I love that there's now this opportunity that you can begin investing with SoFi. Um, I just think that's great. Like you said, the younger population of people, they they learn differently. They consume their information differently. They We have to hit them um, a little bit differently with how than typically we we would or um, what worked for our parents or our grandparents. Um, so before we dive into a little bit more of investing focused um, questions, I'm curious how your definition of success has changed from when you first started your career and you took that first job in Milwaukee to where it is today. That's a that's a really good question. Um, I think when I first started, I mentioned this a little bit. When I first started, I think my definition of success was more something along the lines of like complete task A, move on to task B, and just keep moving along this this predetermined spectrum of accomplishment, right? It was, it was about accomplishment, and it was about getting to that next step, getting to that next level. Um, it, it wasn't about money for me then, obviously. I mean, I took the job that wasn't even the highest paying coming out of college. So it, it wasn't about money and and frankly it it never really has been about money for me it's which sounds weird somebody who's in investing in finance but the the success and the fulfillment that i would get out of a job was much more based on the accomplishment that i was you know 
doing something in it that I felt like, okay, I've grown, I've learned. Um, and, and that was the framework that I was working under now. Um, because, you know, I, I checked a lot of those boxes, right? I did the analyst work. I did the CFA. I did my MBA. And those were, those were my definitions of success back then. Get the degree, finish the program, move on to the next level, right? That was sort of it. But the question is, is a good one because as you move up in your career, when you get to the point where it's like, mm, okay, running out of, running out of levels to get to, right? Or I don't want to go back to school, but what's my other option? Go get a PhD. And now, now I'm just, you know, torturing myself. <laughs> so, so you run out of those ideas. You run out of things to check the boxes on and you do have to find different ways of defining success or getting fulfilled. Um, I think it takes a decent amount of introspection. And uh, I certainly did that, whether forced or or just because I naturally was thinking about it. Um, perhaps when I moved to New York and got to chase the career in finance, got to do the Wall Street thing and see what it was really all about. Um, you know, and the, and the other piece of that is that first job when I got here at BNY, I traveled for five straight years. I was wheels up on Mondays. I mean, I was on the road almost every week of the year and domestically, mostly. Um, later, I was you know, going to London pretty often, but mostly domestically. I mean, I have been in every steakhouse in the country and I feel like I've met every financial advisor who has a job in the United States of America, <laughs> but that was, that was part of the journey as well. So success in that role was awareness, raising assets, that sort of thing. So that was how it was defined. Um, and I did a lot of introspection during that job of, of gosh, why do I like this so much? I really like this job. And what is it about this job that makes me so happy? Um, and it was connecting with an audience and it, it was, the accomplishment became connecting with an audience and watching people have aha moments, uh, taking really complex concepts and information and distilling it down into relatable, um, simpler terms to make the industry not seem so out of reach or out of touch and making it more regular human talk, right? And taking taking a much more casual approach to presenting that sort of thing and finding my own voice in it. And then trying on this authenticity hat where, okay, I don't have to be the, the picture of what somebody thinks about in finance, right? I don't have to be in a navy blue suit and, you know, all of that. I don't have to be exactly that. Let me Let me try to just be me and see what happens. And all of that took some experimentation and, and again, introspection of how can I, how can I feel more like me and what is it that I'm doing that lights me up so much because I really, really like this, you know? So that sort of thing. And then success became those little moments of I did, I did it today, right? I connected today or I got somebody from the not understanding to the understanding and they feel more comfortable because of it, that's a success. Uh, and, and the fulfillment for me of figuring out how to communicate in all these different platforms and, and do it effectively 
on a bunch of different platforms. That's a challenge that I hadn't had before. So now that's success for me is that, okay, I, I had never done social media, at least not for work. And then learning how to, you know, tweet financial information that, I mean, it sounds silly to say that that was a big accomplishment, but it was just such a different language. So mm-hmm. yeah, the success, the success becomes different. The fulfillment comes from a different place for sure. I love that though. I think that's the beauty of what we do. It's going to change. It's going to grow, grow and evolve in what success looks like today is likely not what it's going to look like in, in 10 years, 20 years. It's, it's going to change. And right. I think like you said, there's a lot of introspection that comes throughout our career to discover what that is for us. So what would you say is the biggest misconception you hear about investing? I mean, there are a lot. Uh, I would say the one the one that I think works against people the most is the idea that if you're looking at your portfolio, the idea that if if it's down, it's not working. Or if there's an asset in it, and I mean that about individual assets, not the overall portfolio, um, although sometimes that too. But individual assets, if you're looking at it, it's not all supposed to be green at the same time. And you're probably going to have a smattering of green and red in there. The ones that are red, it doesn't mean that it's not working. It might actually mean that you you did your diversification right. And in this particular environment, some of it's working and it should be working. The other stuff isn't and it shouldn't be. So there's, I think there's a misconception that if there's an unrealized loss on a position, that it's a bad position. Um, and that is not that is not always true. Sometimes that's true and you should have limits in place in the sense of, let's say you bought a stock and this is just to make sure you don't fall in love with something and, and cloud your own judgment, but you bought a stock and let's say it falls, I don't know, I, I'm using example numbers, 20 to 25% from your purchase price. Maybe you've decided that that's your limit. That's like, okay, that's where my gut cannot handle that anymore. So you put that rule in place for yourself and that's just a personal limit and that's where you would sell something. Okay. Um, maybe your limit is even shallower than that. Maybe you can't stomach more than 10% down, right? You, but only you know that about your risk tolerance, but just because something's down doesn't mean that it was a bad decision. So for someone who's earlier in their career, like someone in a Gen Z or a millennial, what are some things they should consider when they think about investing? Obviously their portfolio and diversification, like you just said, but if someone's looking to get started. So first of all, and I said this already, it sounds so simplistic, but just start moving because we can overanalyze and prevent ourselves from, from even just like picking up a finger. Right. So just open the account, just get going. And you're going to have failed investments. That doesn't mean that you're going to have ones that go to zero, but you might have ones that you bought and then you watch, you watch the chart just go (laughs) and think to yourself, Oh my gosh, what did I, where did I go wrong? What, how did I miss that? Those are opportunities to redirect. They're, they're not times that you should get discouraged from investing. Every single one of us has those, right? I've been doing this almost 20 years. I have those. We all do. Um, Anybody who claims to not ever have a losing investment or have an investment that was a, a bad decision, right? Or something that they wish would have gone differently um, is not telling the truth. So it it's going to happen. And, and frankly, the sooner it happens, the better, because the more you'll learn from it and the more than you have in your arsenal to draw back on and say, wait a minute, I remember how that one went. Am I doing the same thing this time? So first and foremost, just start moving and, and don't take, don't take, those little losses as discouragement, just redirections. Um, the other thing I would say is 
you know, if you're just getting started and you're not in the financial services industry, it can be really hard to know where to get resources from and what's reliable and what's not. Um, also, I, I completely recognize that many younger generations do want to get their information from social media. And, and that's okay. We did a survey at SoFi a while ago. It was, I think it was 91% of Gen Z gets their investing information from social media. So companies need to wow. be on social media and resources need to be on social media in order to get in front of those investors. And there are reliable sources on social media, but you know, make sure you're, you're checking that. Make sure you're double checking whose stuff you're reading and, and make sure that it is actually a reliable source. Um, but then beyond that, be the sponge. Let yourself be the sponge. So read, reading is such a lost art. <laughs> <laughs> read books, read the paper. I mean, you don't have to read the physical paper, but keep up with current events and start to figure out how, how a headline moves the market. And do, if you do that often enough, you start to, you, you make relationships in your mind, right? Oh, when this happens, then the market might do X, Y, and Z. There is an opportunity to learn from market movements every single day, but you have to be watching in order to learn that. So start being a sponge, you know, get some money in so you have skin in the game and then be the sponge. Um, obviously the reputable sources, you know, the wall street journal, the New York times, the Economist. like there's a ton of stuff out there. That's very reputable. It's been around for a long time. Um, and then there's also plenty of books on investing that have been very you know, well reviewed and whatever speaks to you is what you should read. Right. And, with the caveat that every once in a while work something in there that that is actually the opposite of of what speaks to you just to make sure that you're getting a full picture. Do you have any good book recs that you turn to? Um I mean the psychology of money is is a good a good standby. Um that one, you know, depending on where you are in your journey might might resonate. Um I I think it probably resonates with many people. But beyond that, I mean, there's, you know, there's the old tried and true stocks for the long run kind of stuff. Um, but I really mean that whatever speaks to you is what you should read. And, you know, every investment professional is going to have their own take on it. Um, I would I would do research on the author before purchasing it um, and make sure that it's that it also has modern principles in it or that you're reading the most up to date version. Um, and And when you're starting out things that are a little bit more broad are probably better in the sense of if you're just getting started, you know, reading a book that's only about real estate investing might not be the right thing. Let's, let's start broader and learn about all of the sectors of the market first, and then you can get more specific later as you figure out, you know, how, how things work a little bit more and, and where you are on the risk return spectrum just personally. So if someone has no accounts open today and they're looking to start investing, what are some actionable steps that they can take to become an investor? Well, the good news is if you're just getting started and you don't have anything open today, there are so many options available to you for low cost accounts, low cost brokerage accounts. And it, you know, gone are the days when you have to have a financial advisor in order to have a brokerage account. So shop it out. First of all, um, there are a lot of different options, like I said, for low or no cost accounts. And then 
there you also have to make sure that depending on the size of your account and the balance that you have, that you can meet the minimums and that you can meet the minimums of the investments that are available. Some platforms, SoFi is one of them, um, some platforms will offer fractional shares. So, you know, let's say there's a stock that trades at $2,000 a share and you only have $1,500 in your whole account. Well, obviously you're, you can't buy even one share of that stock. So there are some platforms that offer fractional shares. So if you're an investor that's interested in that, something to keep in mind as well. And then you do have to do a little bit of thinking about what what's your risk profile. How comfortable are you with risk? How do you define risk? Some people define risk as losing money and that's it, period. Some people define risk as a certain level of volatility in the portfolio. Um, so that's a question that really only the individual can answer. But once you have a decent gauge of that, start filling the portfolio with things. And I do think that it's beneficial to have an allocation in there that is is really just what's considered beta exposure or market exposure. And what I mean by that is it's a you know maybe a broad-based passive ETF that tracks the S&P 500. And you've got then broad market exposure, beta in, in our terms, and that's something that you don't move around too much. That's the core. That's the, okay, I am in the market. And especially if you have a long time horizon, we say long time horizon, I'm talking beyond 10 years. Most people do have a long time horizon. Um, especially if you have a long time horizon, you can put money in and be exposed to all the market moves and over time smooth out the bumps the bruises that are going to occur. So I think it is important to have that exposure in there. Um, also so that you're not tempted with, with all of your money to be moving it around all the time and doing all kinds of little esoteric things, uh, or, you know, rotating into transportation stocks and then rotating back out and going into something else. Like there's just a lot of, of messiness that happens when people are chasing like that. So having an allocation at the core, that's, that's market exposure. And then slowly getting up to speed on what are some of the other places that I might want to have exposure um, and building that out. So I think a lot of people don't really think about the fact that if they're working at a company, a 401k is an investment. If you are contributing to a 401k, you are investing. I think a lot of people think kind of how you're, you're sharing about, you have to open a brokerage account or have these other accounts too, but um, you can also invest right through your paycheck if that's offered to your firm your employer, either through a 401k or a Roth 401k. So I'm curious if you have any insight between a better option or what your pros and cons are for like a Roth 401k versus a regular 401k. And if someone wants to get started that way versus a brokerage account. Yeah. Well, so if you're, if you're very new in your career, uh, it is worth looking at a Roth. I mean, generally the trajectory is you make less when you're younger than you do as you as you advance in your career. So you're probably in a lower tax bracket when you're younger than you are 20 years later because you've advanced and, and your income is higher. So a Roth does have a lot of good benefits because of that. And as, as your income expands, as you move up in your career, the tax benefits that you can get become much more important. So take them where you can get them. Over time, uh, a 401k, you may, you may end up priced out of a Roth, but the, a couple things. The tax benefits are important to take, so take them. Uh, the other thing is any kind of auto-invest program in the sense of it comes out without you having to do anything about it is probably a good idea. Now, it doesn't always have to be a 401k. It, you can do auto-investing just 
you know, set it up and set, open a brokerage account, set it up and have that brokerage account automatically take money out of your paycheck, right? You, you just send it there every single time you get paid. It does. I don't, I don't care how somebody wants to do it, but doing it automatically is really important. And I had a boss when I was in college, um, I wasn't even working full time yet. My paychecks were like $85 every two weeks. I, I, so I had no money, but he, I had become eligible for the 401k and he said, I think you should sign up for it. And I was like, what are you talking? I don't have like an extra dime, right? It, with what money? And he said, just put 6% in. You'll never miss it. You'll forget it even exists and you'll be fine, right? So I, to get him off my back, I did it. I signed up and I did the 6% and he, you know, he was right. He, I never remembered. It just went and it was such a tiny amount every time. It didn't really make that much of a difference. And when I left that job, I had completely forgotten that it existed. And I got a statement that was like, hey, do you want to roll over your 401k? And it had $1,200 in it. And first of all, I was like, oh, my God, I have a balance that that has a comma. I, <laughs> I, don't, I hadn't had any of those yet. So, you know, it's like you do forget about it. And it is important in order to you automatically are just dollar cost averaging into the market. So um, there's that piece of it. The other piece of it is if you have an employer who offers a company match for your 401k, that's free money. That's like you get your salary and you get, you know, whatever they give you, if they give you a bonus or whatever, but you, that a 401k match on top of that, they're giving you free money. Mm -hmm. So do what you can. If you can afford to get the full match, get the full match. And I think that's really important for people to remember too. And, you know, the other thing is about a 401k, they only give you a certain number of funds that you can invest in. So if you're somebody who's overwhelmed with too many options, the 401k might be a good place to really think about starting because you're not, you don't have too many options. They've decided what your options are. So it's not quite as overwhelming to, to pick and choose. Absolutely. I think a big part, obviously, of investing is to, to build our wealth. And the more that we understand and we start doing it, the more empowered we feel. And I'm curious if you have any advice to help people feel more empowered in their financial lives beyond investing. I think discipline is important. Um, and I don't mean, you know, you have to eat ramen noodles and, and frozen peas every day of the week. I, I just mean discipline in the sense of setting up a pattern for yourself. So feeling like you're working towards a goal, I think just humans in general need to feel like they're making progress and progress feels good. So if that means that you're taking $50 out of every paycheck and putting it in a brokerage account, just the feeling that you're working towards something and the discipline of keeping up that habit. The other thing is if you put that habit in place early, you will never stop doing it. The longer you wait to put that habit in place, the harder it is to get started. That's why I just, I constantly say, just start moving, just start moving. So put that habit in place, get it out of the way, get used to it being there. Not only will you keep the habit, but you'll feel like you're making progress toward a goal. You might not even know what the goal is yet, but you're doing something about it, right? And, and I think that helps. So there's a discipline factor in there. And then there's a discipline, there's a spending discipline factor. Now, full disclosure, I am, I love to shop. I love buying perfume. I love to travel, right? There are there are splurgy things that I really like. I happen to splurge on perfume. That's my thing. I'm not saying don't spend money. I'm not saying don't enjoy your money sometimes and, and let yourself do fun things. Absolutely do that. But make sure that you're still having some discipline about those spending habits and you know what's really necessary, what's not as necessary. Um, 
I'm a big believer in in rewarding myself if I, you know, for a job well done or an accomplishment in my career, I'll go splurge on something then and get myself a reward. It's nice to have that kind of thing to look forward to, but having some discipline about it too is important. The last thing I'll say, and this is mostly because this is actually a really important topic right now where mortgage rates are so high, home prices are so high, resist the urge to do what everybody else in your peer group is doing just because they're doing it or just because there is some kind of societal belief that that is the right decision to make. So there is a societal belief that owning a home is the pinnacle of the American dream. And I don't disagree with that. I think owning a home is, is a beautiful thing. Is is now, if you're not forced to buy a home right now, when mortgage rates are 8% and home prices are at highs, don't do it, right? It's it's actually a, a probably a better financial decision to rent for a while and wait it out and see how things develop. You, so if you have to borrow money, and, and a lot of people early in their careers when you're not making as much, you do have to borrow money in order to finance your life, to get a car, to get a house, student loans, right? There's a lot of borrowing that goes on. Make sure you're making good borrowing decisions. So if you're not supporting your life, if you're running up credit card debt because you're making poor spending decisions, that's an opportunity to reevaluate. So that's sort of what I what I mean by the discipline of it. Make good borrowing decisions, the discipline of investing and getting habits in place and then resisting resisting the the peer pressure frankly of of what you're supposed to have and what you're supposed to own or buy or do in order to to be successful or happy. Do what makes you successful and happy. That's such good advice because discipline is what helps us make progress, but it's not always the sexy answer people want to hear. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is just the, the 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 discipline to stick to your goals and to do the work, and that's what's going to get you progress and to help you meet your goals. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been such a great conversation. I have one more question that I want to wrap up with, and that's what's the biggest takeaway of your career thus far? Uh, the biggest takeaway... I think it's probably very similar to what we talked about in the beginning that nothing is ever as you expect it to be. And your your plan will not work out the way that you planned it, <laughs> but that's okay. And you, the takeaway is that you have to be open to that being okay. And a lot of times some of the most beautiful opportunities and the most beautiful twists and turns in your career are the things that you didn't plan for. So um, you know, I think keeping an open mind and a, and a naivete to that, uh, and, and being able to say yes, taking a chance and saying yes to things that as it's coming out of your mouth, I mean, I've had this many times in my career, it's coming out of my mouth. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll take that opportunity. Or yes. I think that maybe sounds like a good idea where in my head, I'm thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? But you know, it works out. And Sometimes it's because you made a commitment for it to work out. Uh, but I think it's really important to be open to that and to do things that that scare you. I know that sounds cliche, but but it's true. You do have to do some stuff that scares you. Absolutely. This has been so great learning more about your career journey and your, your expertise. Where can people find more about you and learn about you and your work? Sure. Well, you can always find stuff on SoFi's website. Go to SoFi.com. I have a blog that comes out every Thursday on the website. 
Uh, we have monthly market reports that also come out there. We have semi-annual outlooks, annual outlooks. That annual outlook will be out uh, this December, so that should be coming soon. I have a monthly podcast called The Important Part. You can find that anywhere in your podcast stores. I am quite active on Twitter. We post a bunch of financial data, um, real-time reactions to things as the data comes out. So you can find me there at Liz Young Strat. Uh, I think that might be it. I don't, you know, watch CNBC, watch Bloomberg TV. I'll pop up from time to time. Um, and I'll be in a lot of other industry publications from interviews. Awesome. Thank you so much, Liz. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Liz. I hope you enjoyed it and got some really great advice and words of wisdom from our conversations. She had some really fantastic insights to share about her career journey and investing. So I hope you have some advice that you can take away and, and use. Um, if you do and you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love if you could rate and review wherever you're listening on Apple or Spotify. It would really mean a lot to me and really help others find this content so they can learn as well. I mentioned this in our conversation, but I also wanted to call out that this podcast is in no way sponsored by SoFi. I am honestly just truly a fan of SoFi. I have used, like I mentioned, the platform to refinance my student loan years ago, and it saved me a lot in interest, and it was such a seamless process. I recently opened a high yield savings account with SoFi and it's been the best thing I've ever done. The interest rate is so much better than your traditional savings account. So I would highly recommend on a personal note to check them out if you are in the market for any of those financial products or anything. Like I said, this is not sponsored by SoFi. I am just truly a fan. It was really fun to hear more about the the company and what they're doing from an investment standpoint from someone who's working there. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did because I'm truly just a fan. So um, like I said, I'll be back next week with another guest episode before taking Christmas off, but enjoy the holiday season. I hope you do something that you love and make time for your loved ones and whatever it is that brings you joy this time of year. So I can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye.